Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week, we're looking at Joe Biden's efforts to re-energize the Western alliance. The US president's been in Europe, holding a series of summit meetings. First, the G7 in Britain, then a NATO summit in Brussels, along with an EU-US meeting, and then onto a summit with Vladimir Putin, the Russian leader. My guest this week has the office next door to me at work. He's Martin Wolf, the FT's chief economics commentator. So did the G7 succeed in giving the world a lead on the pandemic, climate and China? Joe Biden certainly cut a very different figure from Donald Trump in his visit to Europe this week. He's been friendly, diplomatic and emphasised the importance of allies. The only way we're going to meet uh, the global threats is by working together and uh, with our partners and our allies. Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who hosted the G7 meeting, took the opportunity to announce a programme to provide vaccines to the world. I'm very pleased to announce that this weekend, leaders have pledged over one billion doses to the world's poorest countries. But many commentators are sceptical about how much progress the G7 actually made on vaccines and the other big global issues, such as climate and taxation. Martin Wolf's among the sceptics, So I started our conversation by asking him what he made of the G7 action on vaccines. There was a proposal out there, rather well worked out, which I wrote about a few weeks ago from the IMF, which set out a programme with a target of completing vaccinations of basically everybody relevant, particularly older adults, across the entire world by the end of next year. This was given a price tag of about 50 billion, some of which already has been raised. And I'd hoped that the G7 would say, we're completely behind this objective. Uh, We are going to provide the funding to ensure that we can meet that objective. It will be a trivial part of what they've spent on COVID-19 already and the economic cost of COVID-19, which is an even more important issue in this context. And instead, they promised to provide an additional 1 billion doses. Subsequent analysis suggests some of that is double counting, and it clearly won't deliver a solution to the problem, which is also a problem for them, since this pandemic has a tendency to come back and bite us very badly if it continues to develop in the rest of the world. So it strikes me as a perfect combination of complacency and incompetence, and really quite unforgivable for Joe Biden's first G7, which was designed to make clear to the world that the G7 is back, that it's a serious player, and that it is trying to deal with global problems in a way that will make the rest of the world take it seriously. So why do you count for the failure? I mean, you say complacency and so on, but 
it's odd for them to be complacent after the year we've just been through. To me, my guess is just that the domestic politics are still difficult for the likes of the US and Britain, where they think their citizens will not accept shipping vaccines overseas until everybody has had access to a vaccine at home, even if that doesn't necessarily make sense for the reasons you suggest, the development of new variants and so on. The puzzle with this is most people understand that they're not going to be able to deprive their own citizens, though I think it's perfectly reasonable to deprive children who are quite clearly just not victims of this disease. It looks sort of absurd to be vaccinating children who don't need it when roughly 2% of the population of Africa has been vaccinated. It's sort of grotesque. But the whole point of this, as I understand it um, and understood it, is to get the resources in place that would allow, particularly COVAX, which has been set up for this purpose, to create additional capacity. And that additional capacity would come on stream over the next six months to a year, ideally earlier than a year, and would then supply the rest of the world. This is essentially a logistics problem. We have to be able to produce more. When it's produced, it then has to be shipped or delivered to countries and then delivered internally. This is a resource problem. It isn't a question of competition between the needs of the roughly 1.2 billion people who live in the developed world. They were never, I think, likely to be sacrificed for this wider cause. It's about expanding capacity on a scale that allows the whole world to be vaccinated, which, of course, is roughly an additional 6.6 billion people. That's the game. That's the goal. And, of course, it takes money. The IMF estimates that the cost of the disease has exceeded the cost of this program. I think it was about 190 to 1. So it's really puzzling. All you do need to do is to get up and say, this is what it will cost us all. It is a, a tiny fraction of the trillions of dollars and pounds we've been spending on this and will continue to spend on this. And it's insurance for us, for, for you, it's not generosity, because as long as this disease circulates freely in the rest of the world, and particularly if it does at the scale it is now doing, the more certain it is that we're going to get new mutations, some of which are likely to defeat our vaccines. Certainly there's a risk. And then we're back to square one. And I guess if they're not capable of mobilising to deal with a global crisis that is completely dominating and in our face right now, that doesn't make one terribly optimistic that they're going to be able to mobilise to deal with climate change which it's always been evident that the difficulty with that is that it requires you to take a big short-term cost to deal with a, a long-term threat. So what do you think they're doing on climate? What did you make of what the G7 did there? Well, I think it's basically the same thing, though it's still too early to say they're going to fail, partly because it's a somewhat longer-term threat. I mean, my view has been for a very, very long time that... This is a very, very serious, potentially very serious threat. And we are and will continue to fail to meet it. And I have challenged people 
as it were, to prove me wrong in many columns written over a long time and so far. I'm doing fine on that implicit bet. This does not please me. The rhetoric is certainly being ratcheted up, and there are certainly more signs of action now than there were a year or two ago, and this is affecting what regulators are saying, what politicians are saying, also what investors are saying, and even what businesses are saying. It feels more real than before because I think people have recognized this is more real. A big moment was when the International Energy Agency said that we're going to have to do this and this is what it means. However, you know, countries like ours have basically committed themselves to halving net emissions by the end of the decade. I mean, that's an enormous challenge if you think about it seriously, which will alter the lives of everybody. Petrol will become much more expensive and we haven't raised petrol taxes, I think, for 11 years. It will mean we have to replace most of our vehicles with electric cars in 10 years. The electric cars are still very expensive. We will need to start uh, changing home heating to heat pumps. That's a massive and disruptive investment. I don't think any of this has been made clear to the public. And this is in a country where the government is at least rhetorically strongly in favour. I think that much the same is true in Europe. This discussion hasn't really even started in America and in the emerging and developing countries that are at a much earlier stage. So I would say what is it, the wonderful American phrase, all hat and no cattle. That's how it looks to me. And I will be surprised if this, I'm very happily surprised if I turn out to be wrong. One thing where they did seem to do something real was in this agreement to set up a global minimum corporation tax rate, which the number they're talking about is 15%. How significant was that? Of course, the agreement among the G7 doesn't resolve this and how they will deal with those countries which have lower tax rates than that, which are not part of the G7. Um, actually, I, th- I believe it's the case that no part of the G7, no G7 member state has a lower tax rate than that. So it's only binding on others and how that will be actually dealt with is an interesting question. There are mechanisms for them to impose it unilaterally provided it involves their own companies. And that may well be what happens. It's going to create quite interesting ructions, notably inside the EU. The really difficultish part of this is the other aspect of it. And it's not the global minimum tax of 15%, but the idea of taxing the sales of companies, and this is particularly focused on digital companies so far, which... uh, um, ostensibly located outside some of their major markets, but do enormous amounts of activity in them. The UK is very actively concerned about this because they think, take an example, here's Amazon, it pays tax somewhere else where the tax is unbelievably low, and it's competing with every part of the British retail industry, which is subject to British taxes. And that creates pretty obviously a very, very big problem for the British economy and British tax authorities. And this problem is multiplied across the world. The US has made a proposal, 
which is itself quite controversial to limit this to a modest number of companies. I think it's 100. And only over a certain threshold, this extra tax will be implemented. It's very unclear that it will be able to ratify this. It will, I understand, require congressional legislation. Sounds plausible. To make matters muddier still, immediately popped up and said, oh, by the way, we want to pull the finance sector out of this because we have uh, obviously lots of banks here and we don't want them to be taxed by foreigners on activities they conduct here. So right at the moment, this deal looks to me possibly significantly less than meets the eye, or at the very least, it's a very long way from being implemented globally and effective. Those are the major kind of initiatives, it seems to me, coming out of the G7. But there was also an underlying theme which Biden made quite explicit. Others were less keen to stress. That theme was gearing up the West, reuniting the West to compete with China. What do you think of that as a both as a sort of organizing idea? I mean, do you think it's a good idea? And I'm sorry, huge question, but I'll ask it. And do you think they're going to succeed in doing it? I think one of the proposals they had is somehow to create some sort of rival to the Belt and Road Initiative, which included the word green in it. But how what that will mean is very, very unclear. There's obviously a sort of grand narrative and then all sorts of bits to this. The grand narrative is that the US wants to define the era we are moving into as one of strategic competition with China. It's clearly one of the very few things that pretty well everyone in America seems to agree on. But from Biden's point of view, not being Trump, he doesn't want to make this a unilateral crusade. He wants to make it multilateral by bringing in all the allies. And as you indicated, and I think it's clearly true, while the European view of China has certainly changed in the last couple of years, and they are less comfortable with their commercial relations with China, more concerned about human rights and all the rest of it, they are pretty uncomfortable, I think, with being dragged all the way into some sort of open-ended, cold or cool war with China. I think there are many reasons for this, economic interests, Germany, for example, has an enormous interest in trade with China. There are concerns about the stability of the US after the Trump experience. Who who on earth is going to be in power four years from now? There is concern about whether they can really trust the Biden administration to handle all this in a sensible way. They certainly don't want to end up in a war. So I would say at the moment, while the US is pretty clearly moving in this direction, its ability to mobilize the world is limited. And here, one should stress the additional factor. Emerging and developing countries are going to play a very big role in all this. And they have a lot of suspicion of the West for many reasons, a lot of them good ones. And they think, though they have problems with China too, no, no mistake about it, they also think China can give them very useful help and assistance with actual money and the actual ability to create infrastructure, which is actually quite a good thing. And it's not clear to them that we can. So I would say we don't really know where this is going to end up. 
we don't know whether Biden will actually be able to mobilize a unified West, quote unquote, against China. I think it's very unlikely. And there's a lack of trust to coherence and clarity about all this, um, which I believe is going to make this new path very difficult to pursue. And final question about the host, Boris Johnson. I gather from your writing that you're not a huge fan. He obviously, this was a very important moment for him to try to remake his international image as, uh, you know, uh, as an international statesman, not a sort of Trumpian nationalist. Do you think he got anywhere? Well, my suspicion of Boris Johnson is so deep that probably he couldn't do anything to persuade me that he got anywhere. It's quite difficult to host a uh, summit of seven countries when you are uh, fighting a vigorous and pretty open fight over a very, very important international agreement that you signed not very long ago with three of them. Uh, that's pretty obvious. There are a number of different ways of seeing Johnson in this context. First of all, he is an incredibly successful populist politician, and he has in absolutely fundamental ways remade Britain. I think personally that he's remade Britain unambiguously for the worse. Nonetheless, he has remade Britain. His challenge, if you like, I would say his insoluble problem is that he's remade Britain by igniting and at the same time trying to satisfy resurgent chauvinism. I don't think there's any other word for what's going on now. By defining British independence, British sovereignty in opposition, not to Russia or China, but in opposition to Europe, who are supposed to be our allies. It's difficult to persuade people or to have a very intimate alliance relationship with people you're engaged quite consciously and deliberately with, a permanent conflict. And it does look now like a permanent conflict, that every time there's a problem, he's going to stoke this up. And this is most obviously now, of course, over Northern Ireland. He lied about what the deal meant uh, when he agreed it. I always agree with Theresa May that a deal of this kind was lethal, which is why I supported the previous deal, which he'd agreed on how much I hated Brexit, but he lied about it. The lie found him out. So he then started to, to pass, try to pass a law which overturned his own deal. And now we're back in this conflict over Northern Ireland, which was completely predictable, for which he's entirely responsible. And the only way out is to pretend that it's entirely the Europeans' fault And that means he can't back down, I think. And they can't back down, I think, because actually from their point of view, and I understand it fully, the EU is only a construct of international agreements. The treaties are what make it. And if they start saying, well, the treaties don't mean anything in this very important case, then where do they end up? So I think this is actually going to be a permanent feature of our relations. Maybe it will be managed from time to time, then it will explode. Maybe it will reach real explosion point. This summit confirmed my view that if you basically define the sovereignty of your country against a hostile power, which happens to be the political expression for the moment of a large number of your most important allies and your main trading partners, You have a permanent problem, and he may keep it 
stoked well and successfully for British political purposes, and he's done a wonderful job of this, but he's not going to be able to solve his international relations problem as long as this remains, and I don't see how he can escape from it. Okay, Martin Wolf, thank you very much indeed for joining me, and it is joining me since we rarely get to see each other in the office these days, so thanks very much indeed, Martin. Great pleasure. That was Martin Wolf ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join us again next week. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.